You're all very quiet today. <laughs> Which is good. I'm not saying it's not good when you're not quiet, but it's different. Let's pray. Father, may the, the quietness in this meeting house today reflect our desire to hear from you. The world around us tells us we're mad to be here and we're mad to believe in Jesus. And we can be shaken. We can be disturbed. And we need you to lead us as a father teaches his children. As a father comforts his children. As a father blesses his children. So we ask that you might come today. And may our hearts be ready to receive your word. May we leave here rejoicing, confident, and thoroughly blessed. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, between now and Easter, we plan to journey through another section of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And if you have already received your growth group booklet, uh, you will, and, and have looked at it, you will no doubt have seen that we're going to be considering three fundamental questions uh, in this series up between now and Easter, which point us to a, a big picture of who Jesus really is. The three questions are, is Jesus the Christ? Secondly, if Jesus is the Christ, how does this affect you? And thirdly, how have we responded to this reality of who Jesus actually is? So our prayer is that uh, we will be confident uh, in this life-giving truth that Jesus Christ is indeed King and Messiah and Savior and God. Matthew 8 picks up where Matthew 4 leaves off. Of course, what we have in between uh, is the Sermon on the Mount in 5, 6, and 7. But if, you, if you've got your Bible, just flick back there to the end of chapter 4, where we read these words, verse 23, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching uh, in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And then, of course, he goes off up a mountain, and he preaches this great sermon, the Sermon uh, on the Mount. And it was a revelation of true spiritual practice and true religious belief. Jesus graciously and yet firmly tells the religious system of the day, your teaching, your living, your attitudes are all wrong. <laughs> That's what he basically told them in that long sermon. He says, virtually all you believe in, all that you stand for, all that you hope in, are unbiblical and ungodly. You can imagine how well that went down with the religious leaders of his day. So Jesus reveals the hypocrisy and the emptiness of the Jewish religious system. And we spent a long, long time looking at that, right from the summer through to before Christmas. But at the same time, 
as revealing the uh, hypocrisy and the emptiness of the Jewish religious system, Jesus revealed amazing truth with powerful authority. And you notice right at the end of chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. What we're seeing here in Matthew's gospel is a revelation of who Jesus is. Nothing is wasted. Everything has a purpose. If ever you think, oh, that really, that that section doesn't really say anything to me, then you've got it wrong because every part of Scripture has a purpose. Nothing is wasted. And really, Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the Christ. He's the King. He's the Messiah. For example, as one writer puts it, uh, beautifully summarized, the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of chapter 1. You ever wonder why that's there? That's there to prove that Jesus was legitimately and legally qualified to be the Messiah. That's why the genealogy is there. Do you wonder why the birth narratives, the infancy narratives in chapter 1 into chapter 2, they're there to prove that Jesus was prophetically qualified. The baptism narrative, why is that there? It's there to prove that he had divine qualification as God spoke about his son in whom he is well pleased. The perfect resistance to satanic temptation in chapter 4, why is that there? To show that Jesus was spiritually qualified. The Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7. Why do we have this long sermon? Because it proves that he was theologically qualified. But there's another qualification that's needed. Jesus needs to reveal to us his power and his authority. And we need to see and we need to hear beyond doubt proof that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Matthew's building up this case for us. And if we've got ears that are open, we will hear it. We will see it if our eyes are open. If our hearts are tender, we will believe. And what we have in chapter 8 is three portraits of Jesus' divine power as healer. We're going to see, as as Paul mentioned earlier on, we're going to see other forms of his power uh, over the demon-possessed and over nature and over death. But here, we've got three pictures of Jesus' divine power as healer. And of all the healings that Matthew could have picked and reported on, he picks these three for our benefit. And again, we should be asking, why these three? Why are these three here? What are we supposed to believe? We've got the unclean leper. Secondly, a Gentile's servant. Thirdly, a Jewish woman. Three outsiders of the Jewish system. Three outcasts. Jesus is the the one with divine authority. Authority on display to the people who needed help the most. And these healings proved who he was, the Messiah promised by Isaiah. That's why we have it right at the end of the section, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken about through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Perhaps now would be a good time to address the question of what is the point and what is the purpose of miracles. You ever ask that question? Many believe and I would be one of them, that all Christ's miracles 
are really teaching points, parables, visibly portraying the effects of his Spirit's work in a fallen world and in a fallen community, to visibly portray the effects of his work in fallen humanity. Now, of course, there were short-term blessings, short-term relief for those who were sick or, or those who were particularly ill. But we've got to remember, the sick sooner or later got sick again and eventually died, didn't they? The storm that Jesus calmed. Well, you know what? The following day or next week, there's going to be another storm on the lake. The 5,000 who were fed miraculously by a little boy's lunch, the people who received that meal, guess what? They were hungry soon. Probably most of the men were hungry that, later on that afternoon or that evening. So while we don't belittle the significance of the short-term relief of the miracles, we've got to see that there's a greater, larger, longer-lasting point to the miracles. To show who he was. To show what he came to do. That's why in John's gospel they're actually called signs. Signs pointing to who Jesus really was. And that's why Jesus often told the healed person to remain quiet, as he does here in the first one. Um, See that you don't tell anyone, verse 4, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Because Jesus knew that there was a real danger that people would only see the short-term point of the miracle and miss the long-term significance. So miracles are really parables, signs, pointing to who he is. So the healing of the blind, for instance, portrayed Jesus illuminating darkened hearts. His calming of the storm, as we mentioned a few moments ago, on the lake spoke of his ability to bring peace into chaotic situations. The raising from the dead proclaimed his eternity-changing power, his ability to take us through our death into eternal life. And the feeding of the huge crowd spoke of him simply being the bread of life that we all need. These miracles and all the others speak of deep spiritual teaching and none more so than our first miracle in, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8, an unclean leper. Let, let's think of the, about this one. We're going to spend probably a wee bit longer on this one and, and less on the other two. And we haven't really time to go into every verse in detail, but we're trying to get a flavor of what the passage is saying. Leprosy was an awful thing. It was a total condition, a multidimensional problem. And, and we, we could say that it's um, three things. I'll, I'll put them up there now for you to see them. Physically, socially, spiritually, it had effects. I mean, physically, it was called a painless hell. Because basically what had happened, it destroyed the, the, the pain warning system that we all have. And with so, um, no, no warning system when you're actually touching something that was going to hurt you. Um, with little or no immune system, with little or no nutrition that went with that. Basically what happened was your body became mutilated from head to foot. It was an awful condition physically, but it went beyond that. Socially, you were isolated and rejected. You had no contact with people. No love. No family, no affection, no touch. Nobody would touch you. But it went beyond that even, spiritually. I mean, you couldn't worship. 
in the synagogues or in the temple. You're out of bounds. You had to go around, sometimes ringing a bell, but always shouting, unclean, unclean. You lived in little communities full of lepers. It was an awful situation to be in. Physically, socially, spiritually. But this man comes. A man with leprosy, verse 2. Came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me heal. He comes to Jesus. And he comes, as I say there, with confidence, with humility, and with faith. Confidence. He came. He shouldn't have come anywhere near Jesus. He shouldn't have. But he had no fear of rejection by Jesus. No fear of being stoned by Jesus. He didn't shout from a distance, hey, Jesus, will you heal me? He came up close, without hesitation, without shame, because he knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. He came with humility. Notice that he, got, he knelt before him. No arrogance, no pride, down on his knees. A beggar covered in sores, asking for help. And a simple request, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Faith, he came with faith, didn't he? He knew Jesus had the power, but he knew that Jesus was under no obligation to heal. Confident, humble faith. And notice what he says, um, make me clean. He doesn't say, make me well. Make me clean. Because he knew he was dirty inside as well as sick on the outside. He was a wretched sinner who needed not just physical healing but spiritual healing. He says, make me clean, Jesus. I know who you are. I've worked it out. The Holy Spirit somehow has led me to understand who you are. And I want you to make me clean. And that term, make me clean. Prayed in faith is a great prayer. It's a great prayer. Who can make me clean? Who can wash me clean? Do you remember the three questions we mentioned that we'll be looking at throughout this, this um, term in the growth groups and on Sunday mornings? Is Jesus the Christ? This leper would have said, Yes, he is. I know. He is. The Christ. Verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Jesus touched him. He didn't need to. He could have spoken a word. He could have thought um, an idea. He could have stood back and said, oh, you know what happens when somebody says, oh, I've got the flu or I've got a cold? What's our immediate reaction? Hey, don't come too close to me. Did Jesus do that? No. He shouldn't have touched him. The law of the Jews said that, that the man was unclean and defiled. Therefore, if Jesus touched him, he became unclean and defiled. But why the touch? Why did Jesus touch him? Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He wanted the man to feel the love of God and the compassion of God. Jesus was saying, I understand you and I love you and I will make you clean inside 
and out. And of course, it's a, a parable of his whole ministry, isn't it? This, this one little healing. Because one day, he doesn't just touch a leper, he becomes a leper as he hung on the cross, absorbing all the moral filth of a world into his pure, sinless body. You see, this healing is a parable of his whole ministry. Jesus took on flesh, and he touches us, and he heals us. Can you see him? Please, try and imagine. Can you see him bent over the sick leper on his knees before him? His holy hand, or hands, resting on his decaying flesh and saying, I am willing, be clean. Can you see that? See, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is a beautiful Savior. We see tenderness without weakness in Jesus, beautifully balanced. We see strength without a milligram of harshness. We see humility without an ounce of uncertainty. We see power without insensitivity. We see passion without prejudice. Perfectly the Christ. Never an unthinking thought. Never a a false word. Never a missed step. Perfectly God. And immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Notice that at the end of verse 3. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Immediately there means suddenly and complete. So one minute he's filled with sores and probably disfigured horribly. That's the sort of thing that leprosy did. If we had time, we, would have, um, we could have told you about what leprosy uh, does to the body. But can you imagine his feet? Tolus and Ulcerated stubs become whole, and his feet now filled his sandals, if he had them. Hands now had fingers and thumbs, beforehand probably just stubs or or nothing. Back came his hair. Yes, there's hope even for the likes of me. Hair, eyebrows, eyelashes, probably he'd lost it all because of leprosy. And under his hair, he had ears. For the first time in years, he had ears. They are, the poetry. And in front of his face, a nose. A nose. I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Skin, soft and supple. It's like he's been born again. Not unclean, unclean, but I'm clean, I'm clean. Verse 4, then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Again, we see Jesus seeking to stay true to his mission. His mission wasn't to come and be just a, a healing guru. The centrality of his mission was to preach the good news, to die on the cross. And he's simply saying, don't tell anybody, I don't want distractions. This is a healing for a purpose. 
I want you to see the purpose. I want people to see the purpose. Don't get distracted. Now you know who I am and I've proved who I am. Obey me. Don't tell anyone. The sad reality is that the, the parallel account of this in Mark's gospel is that the guy went out and told everybody. Maybe we can understand that. The problem is sometimes we fail to understand who Jesus is and we fail to obey him. As one commentator put it, we are either part of what God is doing or we get in the way of what God is doing. I, I say to you folks this morning, God is doing things among us. Don't get in the way of what God is doing, ever. You're either part of what God is doing or we get in the way of what God is doing. If you're not a Christian this morning, you know what you are? You're a spiritual leper and you need the touch of Jesus. You need cleansing. You don't even have to ask him, is he willing? He is. If you are a Christian, you need ongoing cleansing. I wonder how many sins you Christian have committed this very morning. Have you gossiped? Have you been harsh with your words and thoughts? Have you lusted? Have you coveted? Have you shown a wee bit of jealousy? Discontentment? The list goes on, doesn't it? We need ongoing cleansing. A non-clean leper. That's what I am without Christ. That's what you are. That's why we need the touch of the Savior. It's not an encouraging message at the beginning of 2020. The second healing, we'll have to go with this a wee bit faster, is a, a Gentile's servant. Or a servant who also probably was a Gentile, verses 5 to 13. There are lots of surprises here. Uh, at least seven, uh, as one commentator put it, and I'll just go down them. Surprise number one is that a centurion approaches Jesus. Can you imagine that? Because he was a Gentile, which meant he was part of the wrong race. And he was a Roman military officer, which means he wore the wrong uniform. Surprise number one. Surprise number two, verses six and eight. He calls Jesus Lord. Now, a centurion soldier would have known that Caesar is Lord. That's what you had to recognize. But does he call Caesar Lord? No, he calls Jesus Lord twice. Surprise number three. Verse six, the centurion asks for his servant. I mean, you've got to realize in the context here, servants were seen as just a level above an animal. In fact, sometimes it's easier to replace a servant than it would be to replace an animal. So this is amazing. Surprise number four is verse seven. Jesus offers to go to his house. Again, this was a cultural no-no. I mean, no rabbi, no, no leader, no religious leader would go to a Gentile house, especially a Roman officer. Surprise number five. The centurion would not let Jesus go to his house. In verses eight and nine. Utter humility here. He, he says, I'm not worthy to have you, King Jesus, come into my house. Just say the word. And that's really the, the sixth surprise. To show, he shows faith in the power of Jesus. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. But the seventh surprise is who is in and who is not in the kingdom 
That's what um, Callum was homing in on. Let's read those verses 10 to 12. In fact, let's read it all. Then when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I give this one, I say to this one, go and he goes, and that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. But listen to the seventh surprise. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is really saying here, and this is the, the seventh surprise, who is in and who is out? Who's in? The Gentile military man because of his faith in Jesus. He's in. Who's out? The super religious, pharisaical leaders of the people. They're right. Is Jesus the Christ? Yes. And the centurion saw the, the power and authority of Jesus, authority over nature, authority over disease, authority over death, authority over sin. He saw it all. And Jesus says, you, my man, have faith. And your faith is like the faith of Moses and Abraham and Jacob. But what we see in this man, I think, is something also. I think we see that the centurion saw his need to personally respond to Jesus. He must have had a sense that Jesus would personally get involved. He would personally care. That's why he came and asked him for help. Why else would he have come? But he also needed, he needed to respond to Jesus in coming, in asking, in praying. And what Jesus does, of course, he heals him with a, a power-filled command from distance. He didn't touch the servant in this case. He just said, he is clean. He is healed. Go. And you'll find that he is well. Go, verse 13. It will be done just as you believed it would. And the servant was healed at that very hour. Is Jesus the Christ? That's our big question. Well, the centurion, what do you think he would have said to that one? Yes, 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 he is. How does this affect us? Well, we can trust him, can't we? And we can personally respond to him. And, interestingly, we can entrust our nearest and dearest to him. Moms and dads, do you do that? Do you entrust your children, your covenant children, to the Lord who is able to to save and to work his grace. Thirdly, we see uh, a, a Jewish woman. We've already seen a wretched man, the leper, a respectable man, the Gentile soldier. Now the relative, 
this Jewish woman, verses 14 to 17. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. Now, we're not completely sure of the background, but we can glean from uh, parallel passages what's going on here. Peter invited Jesus back home for some lunch. But instead of getting a delicious hot meal, they find a sick cook. Now, she wasn't nigh on to death. If it was uh, around today, it would be a couple of paracetamol, plenty of fluids, a day in bed. Bingo. Well, not bingo. Don't, I don't suggest you play bingo, okay? <laughs> but healing, okay? But look what Jesus did in verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. You see here? I mean, this isn't like the leprosy. This isn't like, a, this isn't like the, the paralyzed servant who's in great pain and discomfort. This woman's just got a bit of a cold or a fever, temperature. But nothing is too small. Nothing is, un, is unimportant to Jesus. We see here his heart full of compassion for every single kind of person. Jesus invades the, the um, ordinary and the mundane with his love and with his power and with his authority. One woman in one small house, in one small town, in one small country had the full attention of Jesus at that moment. And so he cares. So you, you come today, you, you haven't got cancer. You, 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 haven't a, you haven't got serious sickness or pain, but you are sad. You are heavy hearted. And, and Jesus wants you to know I care. I care. I want to touch you too. See, miracles were carefully crafted to reveal his identity. The king has come. The king coming to undo the effects of the fall and to make people whole. That's who he is. Jesus standing close by her bed. Jesus taking her by the hand. Jesus rebuking the fever. Jesus gently raising her to full health. Not, he didn't say, oh, come on, woman dear. It's just a bit of a cold. Or he didn't say, it's just woman flu. Get over it. Does that sound familiar? Compassionate love for ordinary people with ordinary problems. To touch us in love, of course, is his instinctive way. That, that's the way he does things. It is the way of his healing heart. It is who he is. It's his ministry. It's how he wants to affect us. He cares about your life. He cares about your comings and your goings. He cares about what you are facing. And yes, living in a fallen world at the beginning of 2020 can be full of pain, trials, weaknesses, confusion and doubts. You might wonder as you watch the news, what on earth is going on? You might wonder, is this just going to be another year of the same old list of problems? Who is there for me? Who can help me? Who can strengthen me? Who has compassion for me? And the gospel says, Jesus. Is Jesus the Christ? A hundred percent, yes. He cares. 
Don't be a dumb person doubting that. And verses 16 and 17, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. The air of anticipation and expectation that evening must have been wonderful. Can you picture the pushing and the shoving? Can, Can you smell the odor of sickness that there must have been there? As one commentator pointed out, and I'm sure I've said this before, during Jesus' ministry, disease probably was all but wiped out in the whole of the country. So much was his power, so great was his power. It was a victorious sight, as the king shows that he really is God. Many were brought to him, and he drove out all the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. Is Jesus the Christ? Yes, he is. What do you need for 2020? The Christ. That's what you need. We have three outsiders here, met by, saved by the king. Three groups of religious outcasts invited into his kingdom. So let's see who he is. Let's celebrate who he is. Not as the world imagines. Not as our doubts might whisper into our ears. But let's love him. Let's experience him in salvation. Let's see him and let's proclaim him. And in a few moments' time, we're going to sing in Christ alone. I thought, I'll finish with a quote from that hymn. The problem is, you could quote every line and every verse. But let me, let me remind you what, in a few moments' time, we, we will be singing. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin in him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Verse 3, the end of it, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And the last part of verse 4, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Do you want the secret of 2020? Stand in the power of Christ who is the Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, we're excited about these studies in Matthew's gospel because you have given us a glorious revelation of who Jesus is. And we want to have our hearts lifted up. We want to be excited and confident. And we want to go out as your great ambassadors. Will you help us, we pray? Will you feed us and lead us and empower us? And as we sing this great hymn at the end of our service today, may our hearts be buzzing as we are confident in who you have given to us as Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.